This is a continuation of The Rise and Demise of Women's Liberation by Marlene Dixon. This is going to be a bit of an ASMR episode because it's already very late in the evening. Reactionary Feminism The bourgeois feminist line, Men Are the Enemy, branches into two ideologies, liberal feminism and reactionary or radical feminism. The first, liberal feminism, does not openly admit that its ideology is a variant on men are the enemy, but disguises that assumption behind a liberal facade that men are misguided, and through education and persuasion, legal if need be, can be brought around to accepting the equalization of the status of women. Since the questions of the origins of injustice and the roots of social power are never very strong, in any liberal ideology, there's little besides legislative reforms and education to fall back on. Reactionary feminism, on the other hand, openly asserted as its fundamental tenet that all men are the enemies of all women, and, in its most extreme forms, called for the subjugation of all men to some form of matriarchy, and sometimes for the extermination of all men. It offered a utopia, composed of police states and extermination camps, even though reactionary feminists very rarely followed through to the logical outcome of their position. Reactionary feminism was not an ideology of revolution, the likelihood of victory seeming remote even to its advocates, but an ideology of vengeance. It was also a profound statement of despair that saw the cruelty and ugliness of present relationships between men and women as immutable, inescapable. Reactionary feminism may have been politically confused, and it was certainly politically destructive, but it powerfully expressed the experience and feeling of a whole segment of the female population. The root of reactionary feminism was in the sexual exploitation of women. Its strength lay in the fact that it did express an appeal to psychological oppression, for this oppression is far worse than the conditions of economic exploitation experienced by petty bourgeois women. In the last analysis, reactionary feminism was a product of male supremacy, and its corollary, sexual exploitation. Male supremacy, itself reactionary, breeds reaction. With the virtual expulsion of the left leadership, the radical feminists assumed leadership over the portion of the movement not yet co-opted into the reformist wing. The excesses of the right, man-hating reactionary separatism, lesbian vanguardism, virulent anti-communist, opposition to all people's revolutionary struggles, including Vietnam, served to discredit women's liberation and to make public the split in the movement between the reformists and the radical feminists. Of the exploitation of the left, no mention was made, keeping up the masquerade as an anti-elitist campaign. The triumph of the right resulted in the disintegration of the women's liberation movement. In the shambles to which the movement had reduced itself, left and right opportunists were swift to seize the opportunity to take control. The leftists watched the predictable occur with despair, while the reactionary so-called radical feminists, with their shriek of elitism still issuing from their mouths, found the movement they had sought to control snatched out of their hands. The Failure of Program Women's liberation never produced a coherent program. Programmatic development requires theoretical development, and women's liberation was incapable, on the basis of its class contradictions alone, of generating a coherent political analysis. 
What program and agitation existed clearly reflected the class nature of the movement. The wide variety of national and local single-issue programs undertaken by isolated women's groups reflected the overriding problems of younger, middle-class women. The need for legal abortion, rather than a demand for universal health and nutritional care, including abortion and birth control services, which working-class and poor women desperately need, demands for cooperative, parent-controlled daycare centers, rather than universal daycare with compensatory educational programs, which the majority of the working-class parents and children need, the creation of women's centers to provide young women with a, quote, place of their own, quote, in which to socialize, to work for abortion on demand or to secure illegal abortions, rather than creating organizational centers capable of organizing with working-class women for struggles on the job or in the community. The cold truth of the matter is that the women's centers often differed very little from the standby of the suburban housewife community work, complete with good deeds, exciting activities, lively gossip, and truly thrilling exercises in intrigue and character assassination. Within these centers, working-class women often wandered about in a state of frustration and confusion. They knew something was very wrong but they did not know what. Given the almost exclusive attention to sexual exploitation and the consequent psychological oppression, the focus was not upon male supremacy as part of class exploitation, but upon its result, the practice of male chauvinism, not upon the need for revolutionary struggle and economic changes, but upon individualized struggles between men and women around the oppressive attitudes and objective sexual and social privileges of men. Furthermore, emphasis upon male chauvinism had the effect of privatizing the contradiction between men and women, transmuting the conflict into problems of personal relationships rather than politicizing the conflict as part of the overall capitalist system of economic and class exploitation. The internal failures of the movement may be summed up in a brief series of criticisms. Mass movements contain within them class contradictions. Women were far too slow to recognize class struggle for what it was within the movement. Furthermore, lack of a correct theoretical analysis led to the left's inability to generate correct programs to guide internal class struggle. The movement was thus reduced to single-issue mass campaigns, which had to coalesce around the lowest common denominator, reform. Leadership thus passed to liberal reformers or left opportunists who opposed straightforward class conflict or open recognition of the inevitability of such conflict. The movement isolated itself, for these and other reasons, from the concrete struggles of working class women in the home and in the factory who make up the majority of oppressed and exploited women. The final and perhaps the most important lesson to be learned is that a movement without coherent politics, organization, and discipline cannot be a fighting organization. In short, women's liberation for all its rhetoric and all its pretensions, for all its brave start, has outwardly become what it really was, indeed what it had to be, an anti-working class, anti-communist, petty bourgeois reform movement. And that's where we're going to leave this relatively brief and soft-spoken menagerie this evening. We will resume with the section entitled Socialist Feminism in Part 4. Till then, enjoy your epoch. <laughs>